episode 77 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and we are about to go on hiatus for an entire month. Uh, so this is uh, your last uh, uh, podcast until September. Um, it, it's a good one, though. Uh, our guest commentator will be Bruce Andrews, the Deputy Secretary of Commerce. Prior to joining Commerce, he was General Counsel for the Senate Committee on Commerce, uh, Science, and Transportation. Uh, and before that, uh, he represented uh, Ford Motor Company uh, and uh, was in private practice. Uh, we're also joined by Alan Cohn, formerly the head of strategy for DHS and the second in charge of DHS's policy office, now of counsel at Steptoe. I'm Stuart Baker, from, formerly with NSA and DHS, holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's jump right in, Alan. Uh, uh, there are a substantial number of stories saying that the U.S. has decided it's not going to blame China for the OPM data hack. Uh, uh, do you know... Uh, why uh, the uh, uh, the Chinese are not going to take the blame? Well, nobody knows exactly why, uh, right? But it's interesting. You know, we had Rob Kanaki on yep. the podcast a few weeks ago, uh, and he has been re- writing on this a couple of pieces. He predicted <laughs> this, yeah. that the U.S. would not name China under various theories that either countries are supposed to, to spy on each other, and this is, in fact, uh, intelligence gathering, Um our so, trade so, relations, so, etc. So my, my, I have raised this uh, with uh, um, uh, folks inside the administration, and they've kind of hinted, well, we just don't have them dead to rights. Uh, I, my guess is they don't have them dead to rights enough to take on the pain that would be associated with saying we have them dead to rights. I think that may be right. I think that level of pain may just not be they're not willing to take ready it. to go. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. They, so uh, this might be enough um, justification to uh, uh, blame North Korea, but it's not enough justification to blame China. I think that's right, or at least the variance between the two in terms of the, the quantum of proof, it's not not going to not going to overcome all the other invi- uh, uh, environmental aspects. Right. So. Yes. Uh, that that sounds right. So uh, um, it's a little bit uh, proof, and it's a little bit. Uh, cojones. Uh, all right. Uh, well, uh, the other uh, topic that uh, was quite timely last week uh, was uh, something that you and I were both involved in, which is the uh, the furor over the cybersecurity export control regulations, uh, which has been quite substantial. There was like 200 comments uh, uh, filed, almost all of them saying, this is nuts. Um, a, and uh, uh, I think we're going to have a uh, a long argument over this this rule. Yes, I and mean, it's not unusual for um, there to be debate over a proposed rule, but when the rule is basically 204 against and Chris Segoyan only speaking for himself, that- for, um, <laughs> then then you have a problem. And um, so so the ACLU would not let him speak on its behalf. Huh? For whatever reason, his his comments were filed as his own. So um, the commerce uh, the commerce department has yet to post all the comments. So we don't know definitively, but uh, but that is the only uh, that's the only indication we have of, uh, of someone speaking in support of the of the rule and uh, in, in its in its fullness. So the rule that uh, the rule is clearly going to going to 
get revised in some fashion. Uh, uh, is there going to be uh, a problem on the Hill over this? You know, I think it, it merits some examination. I think that this has been, you know, it's difficult. This is as much an export control issue as it is a cyber issue. So mm -hmm. it's difficult for the people who care about cybersecurity to get their arms around it at first blush. Yes. It's very technical. Um, it's, it's an area where, you know, there are practitioners in the area, and those are the people you turn to. Um, but I think it's an important issue for the, the people who care about cybersecurity to make sure they know about. Yeah, and I, my impression is that they have, it took a while, but they sort of made it in under the wire explaining this is how export controls work and this is why it's important for cybersecurity. So we're starting to see that. I, what we haven't seen is uh, banks and power companies saying, wait a minute, this is a big deal for us too. Yes, and we did see on the Hill, uh, particularly on the House side, um, uh, both Chairman McCall and uh, Representative Langevin uh, on the House side filing uh, comments in opposition to the to the rule. So um, presumably that's just the beginning of the uh, of the interest. Well, we're into Cyber Week, as I understand it. So there there may be expressions of interest on the Hill. Uh, uh, what does Cyber Week consist of? <laughs> um, it's a uh, it's a it's a it's a wide appetite of uh, of activities. I think what we're mainly going to see is the question of whether the desire for information sharing yeah. and the liability protections yep, yep. that are used as the incentive can outweigh uh, the concerted push on behalf of the privacy community uh, to prevent that uh, that information sharing of cyber threat indicators from becoming uh, a new exception or a new way uh, for uh, for the kind of uh, information or intelligence gathering. That, so, uh, so we're going to so CISA is going to come up this week, and we'll, we'll it'll be a test of strength to the people who really want to get uh, information sharing uh, and immunity for information sharing into the law have more clout than the privacy groups. Uh, my guess is they do because uh, uh, there's a lot of interest in uh, uh, from businesses in having this kind of immunity. And remember, the administration has weighed in favor of that deal, yeah. of the information sharing and immunity. Uh, differently scoped, perhaps, uh, than, than what CISA pro uh, proposes, uh, but they are in favor of that general principle. All right. Uh, well, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, actual case law. The Seventh Circuit uh, um, uh, ruled in a Neiman Marcus case. We made fun of the Neiman Marcus case about the kinds of uh, uh, products that uh, would get people to actually uh, uh, adopt uh, uh, security measures. Uh, but um, uh, the actual decision was uh, uh, kind of a standing question, uh, uh, whether it was appropriate to um, continue a lawsuit uh, um, where there was not a lot of actual damage to the people whose uh, data was breached, right? Right. Well, less, in a sense, actual damage than an inability to show the harm. Where, where that the, at the time of the case, it's a, it's a slight distinction, but I think it's important for the purposes um, that we might talk about it. Mm -hmm. uh, in is that, and the OPM case highlights this, is that when you see the harm from a breach, is not necessarily the next day, the next week, the next year. Right. 
Um, it could be months, it could be years before you really see the impact um, of a breach. So is it sufficient to know that the breach has occurred um, or do you, or what is the quantum of evidence that you need to show in terms of harm uh, before either you have a, a valid case or before other things kick in, the responsibilities of the company, the insurers, et cetera? So I, it, it does seem to me as though uh, uh, there is, um, there's been some divergence in the courts about how much harm and how uh, uh, imminent that harm must be before you can bring a, a lawsuit. And this, this case seems to be sort of where the majority is. They're going to allow uh, uh, these cases to go forward without uh, a demonstration of uh, uh, serious problems uh, yet. That's right. We we talked on the podcast a couple of weeks ago uh, about a Connecticut uh, case mm-hmm. where the, the state level, the courts came out in a different direction. Uh, but this seems to be the general direction that the federal courts are going. All right. Um, so uh, a couple of quick hits. Uh, I think we, we covered uh, earlier the fact that uh, the U.K. High Court had uh, invalidated a data retention law um, uh, along that in that regard, they're following several other EU uh, uh, cases that said that certain aspects of the data retention requirements that had been imposed in the wake of 9-11 uh, went too far. Uh, the UK High Court more or less followed that. Uh, they don't have a constitution in the UK, but they have turned the European com- com- uh, uh, Convention on Human Rights into what amounts to a, uh, um, a constitution, and this was a ruling that... Uh, uh, unless amended, uh, it would be uh, 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 the data retention law was a violation of that uh, uh, convention. Um, my guess on this is, um, judging from the reaction of the administration uh, and the fact that um, many of these problems were pretty fixable, they were not uh, uh, existential as far as data retention goes, that uh, uh, we will soon see a revision of the uh, uh, of, of the law in the UK, and then they'll repass it. Uh, uh, I know Michael has said this is a big deal in part because it makes history. It's the first time that uh, a UK court has simply said, Parliament, you can't do that. Um, obviously, in the absence of a, a constitution, they never had that authority. Now they have. Uh, but my guess is sort of like Marbury against Madison, uh, where the court said, uh, you know, you can't do that if you do it that way. But um, actually, you can do it some other way. So no problem. Uh, uh, we just wanted to make the point uh, that we'll be in a situation where this may be more important for what they said about their authority than about the actual impact on the law of the United Kingdom. Yes, uh, Marbury may be best read as the we can do this yeah, exactly. if we want to, but we're not uh, here. And, and um, uh, the French, uh, moving in a different direction entirely, have gotten their uh, Conseil d'État uh, to uh, approve their new surveillance law. So their expanded surveillance law goes into effect, uh, um, a, a, I think, immediately. Uh, uh, sort of demonstrating, I think, to a significant extent the um, way in which the United States politically is now out of step with most of Europe, where where there is a substantial political uh, determination to expand surveillance authority, uh, uh, even though uh, uh, the... uh, 
the United States is moving in a different direction and notwithstanding uh, Snowden. Or maybe maybe Snowden has given them a target to shoot at. Shoot at. We just want to be as good as NSA at this. Well, it's interesting. It's the Snowden <clears throat> has given uh, the Europeans and others us as a target to shoot at, but the the Charlie Hebdo attacks and others have given them all given them also an acute sense of uh, the need for uh, for some of these types of, of uh, authorities. Well, I have to I have to say this this was not something we were planning to talk about, but I tweeted it over the weekend uh, uh, because it's so satisfying for those of us who uh, think NSA uh, should not have been pilloried in the way it uh, uh, was. Um, May twenty, um, Rand Paul uh, goes out and filibusters NSA's program and then take, goes to the mat two weeks later, uh, over that program. Uh, um, a, when he does that, he is third in the polls, uh, in the, uh, uh Republican field. Uh, uh, today after that really, uh, uh, uh most symbolic. It, it, it was his moment in the sun. Uh, he has dropped to sixth or seventh uh, and lost about a third of his support. About a month after he acted, um, you know, Donald Trump gives a speech and his moment in the sun, uh, uh, well, or at least uh, under the magnifying glass, uh, in which he says, um, uh, illegal immigration, I'm against it, and by God, uh, you know, it's serious, etc. Um, and he goes from eighth or ninth to first in the polls. Uh, um, I, I, I would guess he's, he's um, uh, increased his support uh, by something like... Uh, 800 percent, which, you know, it it surely is not the case that um, Rand Paul is that much less attractive a personality than Donald Trump. Uh, uh, And I I think these are the only two really big changes in the field, um, which suggests that uh, Rand Paul picked the wrong issue or misjudged his party uh, uh, in deciding that he was going to be the guy who would be known as the, the fellow who would get rid of NSA and its surveillance programs. I guess or maybe just if if you want to be the star of your own reality show, don't choose C-SPAN as your network. <laughs> that may be it. Uh, anyway, uh, it's, uh, for those of us who uh, have uh, spent too long uh, uh, getting beaten up for NSA's programs, it's sort of nice to see uh, somebody else on the receiving end of that. Uh, okay, um, but on, in other uh, NSA-type uh, news, uh, or maybe it's also Justice Department news, I noticed that a number of... Uh, Bush administration figures out at Aspen. They were out at Aspen with me talking Homeland Security, and then they stuck around to talk uh, uh, justice and crypto. Uh, both Michael Chertoff and Mike Leiter uh, said, uh, wow, uh, we think backdoors are a bad idea. We don't agree with Comey. We don't re- agree with the Justice Department. Uh, um, a, that's the first time that uh, uh, we've seen folks from the Bush 43 administration seemed to get to the left of this administration on anything you could describe as civil liberties. Uh, it's interesting. Um, Michael Chertoff in particular has made some of these comments before, but not as publicly. Not as publicly and not as succinctly and as um, soundbitey. Clear, yes, clearly <laughs> in the, in kind of a 
I don't want to say manifesto, but in kind of a, a declaration of principles uh, type way. Very interesting to see uh, both the former secretary and, uh, and the former head of N- NCTC coming out uh, in this way. Uh, just kind of an update for those who have been following the OPM hack. You know that uh, there is an assumption that was done by China and that the Chinese had done uh, uh, Anthem and some other health uh, suppliers to collect data before that. Now Bloomberg has a, st- a story out that says actually it was even earlier than that, but the Chinese seem to have started a campaign to collect this data and that they started it with travel databases a couple of years ago. Uh, so it seems perfectly obvious that the Chinese are building databases, and probably not just on Americans, but certainly on Americans. Uh, um, and my guess is, you know, you kind of say, well, why would you do that? And I think the answer is it works for them at home, and you tend to do the same thing abroad that works for you at home. So they're assembling the database on the theory that that will allow them to uh, um, take action against people who they think are not uh, on their side. I think it's a compelling theory, and I think we always have to keep in mind that the time horizons, uh, particularly that the Chinese work on, are very different than, than what we think about in the media cycle or in uh, the news cycle or political cycles. You know, the idea of uh, the, the piece today talked a bit about, um, or the rebuttal from some of the folks said, saying that, well, but it's going to take them a long time to be able to sort out all of this data. Oh. That, that, yeah, and I, I think I saw somebody say, oh, they're going to have a big data problem of their own. I, you know, give me a break. You know, they, they, I think they can handle this. Uh, I, and uh, this just goes to show that the, uh, the civil libertarians who've been saying, well, I, I want to help the government not to be drowning in data so uh, they'll collect less and then they'll be smarter uh, are, are kidding themselves. And I think it also shows that for the, for the, the threats that we're starting to see more of and that we're starting to deal with, have to think about this on a much longer time scale and that these things are that they build on themselves and cumulative effects and things of that nature. Yeah. I, I well if we don't know what they're doing with this, we're not hacking them hard enough, right? I, I, and uh, I, if there's any appropriate response to the OPM hack, it's that we should go back and hack them a little harder. Uh, we should know exactly where this stuff went and what they're doing with it. Well, I'm getting back to actual law. I see the FTC has LifeLock in front of them again, and this time I'm guessing they're going to throw away the key. Yes, so if for those um, uh, who were following this at home, just to recap, um, the FTC set, uh, settled out uh, charges with LifeLock in 2010 um, that uh, the FTC joined by 35 states that the statements that LifeLock was making about their identity theft prevention and data security claims were false. And so they were saying things like, uh, by now you've heard about individuals whose identities have been stolen by identity thieves. LifeLock protects against this ever happening to you guaranteed. Uh, Please know that we are the first company to prevent identity theft from occurring. Uh, And do you ever worry about identity theft? If so, uh, it's time you got to know LifeLock. We work to stop identity theft before it happens. As it turns out, uh, what they were doing, uh, and which is uh, familiar to a lot of people uh, right now, especially those of us in the in the, in the OPM, uh, OPM files, is they were placing uh, a, a look on the opening of new accounts 
Um, and they weren't offering any protection against the misuse of existing accounts. And mm. at the time, um, the new account fraud uh, was comprising only about 17% of identity theft incidents, uh, at least um, at that time. Uh, and so uh, the LifeLock and the FTC settled. Uh, LifeLock paid $12 million to settle those charges. Um, the FTC now claims that LifeLock is not living up to the terms of the order. Uh, and so specifically, uh, they are they have failed to establish and maintain a comprehensive information security program uh, to protect its users' data. Um, they are falsely advertising that they protect con- consumers' sensitive data with the same high-level safeguards as financial institutions, uh, and that they're failing to meet the, the 2010's order's record-keeping requirements. Uh, and so this is going back in the j- January 2012 to December 2014 time period. Huh. So uh, it, um, it looks as though they're going to be just permanently under the thumb of the FTC, yeah, um, which uh, I'm guessing just doesn't like their business model. They don't think they can do the things that they have said they do. And it's a reasonable question to ask in light of everything that's gone on. There's a lot of things that a company like Life, like LifeLock can do, um, but whether it can guarantee that your identity is never going to be stolen um, – uh, is maybe one of them. And it does seem reasonable to expect that uh, if you're going to say that you're going to comply to the level of financial institutions, um, then then that is what you will do now. How the FTC goes, about, goes into the business of establishing uh, that financial institutions are doing X and LifeLock is doing Y will be an interesting, uh, will be an interesting thing to watch. So I'm 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 dying to find out whether the FTC uh, gets involved in another hack, uh, which we'll be covering shortly. And then last, of course, we wouldn't be complete if we didn't do this week in prurient cybersecurity. Ashley Madison hack. Um, uh, I actually did go back trying to figure out where they got the name. Uh, the most popular girl's name in 1991 and 1992 was Ashley. Uh, those women would be, what, 25, 24 now. So that is apparently the demographic that they think the men that they're appealing to are looking for. Uh, and indeed, I think there is a uh, an indication in uh, some of the, um, uh, the leaked information that uh, um, the men who've joined are about 10 years older than the women who've joined uh, Ashley Madison. Uh, but most important, they've started to release names, too, I think. Uh, uh, you know, how unlucky do you have to be to be one of the two? Uh, but I noticed that one guy they actually found, he's on in, on, in Ontario, and he said, well, I just joined because I was curious and it sucked. I, <clears throat> uh, but I thought the most interesting thing was that uh, – They've done a study of where most of the members are from, and it turns out the place that has the largest concentration of members is Ottawa, Canada. So they've got this. It's not an accident that this Canadian guy, apparently the you know the nights really are long up there, uh, is uh, uh, is the first to be released. Uh, um, the only place that gives Ottawa much competition, Washington D.C. Uh, which also suggests that, um, you know, people who work in government, because Ottawa's the Washington, D.C. of Canada, 
still really have too much time on their hands. That's an that's an interesting correlation. We'll have to see. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be the last episode of the podcast without uh, without a, uh, a hackback discussion and uh, prurient cybersecurity. So. Yep. Well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, and now uh, uh, on to our discussion uh, uh, with uh, uh, Bruce Andrews. So uh, we're here, Alan Cohen and I, to talk to Bruce Andrews. Thank you, Bruce, for doing this. This is great. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, and Capsule Bio Private Practice and then Head of Government Affairs for Ford Motor and then uh, uh, Commerce Committee on the Senate side Correct. and then over to the Commerce Department. Exactly. Uh, I should say, I, uh, I'm a Ford child, proud graduate of Edsel Ford High School. Is that right? Yeah, and I uh, went to college on a Ford scholarship uh, wow. at least two years uh, and uh, um, grew up uh, when uh, really um, it was impossible to be a Republican in uh, uh, Michigan, Michigan because uh, that was only for management. Right. <laughs> So um, we want to talk about cybersecurity, mm-hmm. uh, and um, I know you've been traveling abroad, went to yes. Eastern Europe. Uh, uh, what's the international climate on cybersecurity? So I think there is a uh, growing recognition of how important this issue is, particularly, um, you know, in, 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 well, in a lot of regions, but I, I actually traveled in May uh, <clears throat> to Eastern Europe. We did a trade mission with 20 companies to uh, Romania and Poland, and it was interesting because the reaction was actually overwhelming, including, um, you know, in Romania, um, uh, Prime Minister Ponta spent three, you know, two hours on three successive days, which you, fi- you think about what a time commitment, but also just the reaction of both the business community there and the governments. We, um, <clears throat> we set up over 600 business-to-business and business-to-government meetings just with wow. those 20 companies alone. We uh, did a regional cybersecurity um, conference with, well, we did, the first day we were in Romania, we did just within Romania, with the Romanian government, different age, with different ministries. <clears throat> and then the second day, we actually invited the 11 regional neighbors and did a regional cybersecurity conference where part of it was with the companies and then part of it was just government to government. And the reaction was overwhelming. And obviously in that part of the world, um, they face a number of nation state, um, challenges. And with Romania taking the lead within NATO is the, um, is the kind of, uh, on cybersecurity for, uh, the Ukraine. They also, um, you know, face special issues as a result of that role. So, so I, I, I should tell you, I, I, I once went to Taiwan and uh, was speaking to somebody about cybersecurity a few years ago, and he said, well, we're a poor island without a lot of natural resources, but we do have an endless supply of Chinese zero days. <laughs> I suspect that the Eastern Europeans feel the same way. You just have to change uh, the name of the source. Very, very much so. But I also think they recognize it, particularly in that part of the world, that that is one of the greatest f- threats that they face in terms of, um, you know, nation-state activity. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a fast-evolving region. We, we went to Poland as well, and the reaction in Poland was fantastic as well, and really a strong embrace by the government. I think in all of those countries, A, they appreciate the partnership with the U.S. and working with U.S. businesses, but also... Um, you know, I think they recognize the opportunity to turn that into uh, into um, economic activity. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got smart, well-educated populations. You know, the Prime Minister Ponta, um, you know, they obviously they've had their own issues with cyber, um, you know, and he, he made a joke about, I guess there's a, 
uh, village in Romania that's known as Hackerville because it had such a high, you know, but I think they recognize if they can take those skill sets and, um, you know, really transform them for a use, uh, you know, legitimate use. And frankly, there were a number of American companies that came along on our trip that are already, they've already located R&D or other facilities. I actually went and visited um, one company that, one major American financial services company that not only does a lot of its back office, but it has three cybersecurity uh, centers in the world, one in the U.S., um, one in that country, um, and then one in Asia, but they split, you know, sort of eight-hour watches across mm-hmm. the world. But it's just a recognition. There's both an interest, a strong interest, but also a skill set in that part of the world. Yeah. And and do you think that U.S. companies really have mindshare here, that they, they, they are perceived as the, the global leaders in Ab- cybersecurity? Absolutely. It is very clear to me the respect. And part of it is we very purposely took both some big companies who all, you know, we have a process for who applies mm-hmm. and how people are chosen, but we also very purposely took some small companies. We had companies with less than 10 employees. And here was this opportunity to engage right. and really, um, you know, find both business opportunities but also partnerships. And it was not lost on me. Do you know what the second most commonly spoken language in Microsoft behind English is? Romanian. Really? Yes. It is. It was fascinating. And part of that is is their cybersecurity group, Microsoft, that actually acquired a Romanian cybersecurity company, and they liked them so much that they moved them to Red, like literally right. moved all the employees to Redmond, and that's one of the cornerstones of their internal cybersecurity uh, team. Fascinating, but I guess it, it, it was certainly the case. If you could, you know, especially in the old days in Romania, if you could code, you well, that was a ticket to the nomenclatura. It is. It is. And I also think just because of the way the European or the EU economies break down, there is an opportunity. You know, there, there's a lot of investment going into that region, and you know, and part of it is you have a well-educated workforce, but also the salaries don't tend to be as high. And so I think companies are recognizing here you got a great workforce and is a lower cost of living than you know some of the more Western European countries. So there's a real there's a real synergy between uh, American companies in that region. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, all we have to do is show that we actually can defend against uh, cyber attacks, uh, uh, which I guess I, I ought to ask about. Uh, I mean, we're, we're still getting pwned every day, every day. Uh, from OPM to uh, the attacks on uh, uh, GitHub and mm-hmm. uh, all of the, uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, cyber espionage. Uh, uh, I know you've done a lot and a lot of good work uh, with the NIST cybersecurity framework, but uh, um, can you talk about what you think the, the end game is for us? When do we and how do we get actually secure? Well, I, don't, I, I think this is going to be one of those things that, you know, I think my young children are going to still, I think we're going to face this challenge from now um, and probably, you know, for a very, very long period of time because, um, you know, we're moving into an increasingly digital world. And I think you know, that's the thing that's so interesting to me is we're only partway there, right? I mean, there is a lot of digitization and just kind of the, the way that the digital economy is going to move into every facet of our lives. You know, as we look, um, you know, reading the stories yesterday about the GPAC, it just points out to you we're increasingly <clears throat> in a wired world, and so the number of vulnerabilities. Now, I do think... That this has been a wake-up call um, for you know everyone in terms of how important this is. I think companies, you know, the Target and Home Depot hacks helped wake up, and I think the OPM, I think government, and, and frankly within our building, 
we had been taking it very seriously, but I do think the OPM hack has raised it to another level. And I actually think the president's leadership in going to agencies and really demanding that everybody be doing the things they need to do and, you know, to, to at least not make it easy, right? I mean, the, the challenge here is we're dealing with very, very sophisticated actors in some cases. And as you well know, because you, you guys both have been involved in this field, um, in this area, uh, it's a huge challenge. You know, you can build the wall, but the bad guys figure out how to get over that wall. And then you can build the wall higher, and they're going to spend every day trying to figure out. So we are going to be, I think, engaged in a very long-term challenge here. But I also think that you are getting the recognition at the highest levels that you did not always have. You know, I think back to when I was in the probably the second month I was with the Senate Commerce Committee um, was when we uh, when we introduced and Senator Rockefeller introduced his what was the first comprehensive cybersecurity legislation and on the Hill. And um, you know, I will never forget the reaction we got because we got this very negative reaction from the private sector, including one major big huge American company, that I remember them coming in and saying to us, we don't need your help. We can do this on your own. Government doesn't really have a role here. We can do this ourselves. And then a month later, literally a month later, they got, they were involved in a major embarrassing hack. And this was one of the most sophisticated online companies in the world. And the irony was, to me, is they never came back again and said, government doesn't have a role. You guys should stay out of this. Now, I do think that, you know, we are... Everybody has recognized at that time we really worked hard to get people to recognize the importance. I mean, I don't know if you remember Senator Rockefeller actually sent a letter to the Securities and Exchange Commission I, I saying that. And, and and he got them to take some action. They did, but I think it, it, it's still you know I yeah, mean it's, I, it was modest. It was modest in the recognition. I do think there is now a recognition in the C-suite level, and I also think, frankly, you have a recognition in the Oval Office of how important this is. And you know, one of the things that is it, obviously there are a lot of great things in the framework that NIST, um, you know, put together with the private sector. But I think one of them is having high-level recognition. And that's something that I actually give my my boss, Secretary Pritzker, a great deal because when she came in, you know, she had been on the board of directors of a number of companies. And the first question she asked were, okay, what's our cybersecurity posture? What are we doing? Because I think the the leaders of organizations have to drive consideration of cybersecurity. And at the time, and I remember when we did the first Rockefeller bill, everybody just looked at it as a cost. People didn't, you know, and they looked at it not from a, is this investment worth, you know, the, the, um, the cost in terms of avoiding something bad happen, but people just looked at it as a cost center and how do I, you know, frankly, not have to spend too much on this. And I think people now, the threat level has been so ratcheted up and recognized what it can do to your business, to your reputation, frankly, to a government. Um, and there is a real emphasis, an important emphasis on protecting critical systems. So one of the things, I, 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 I thought Senator Rockefeller did a good thing with that and that getting the SEC to, to focus on disclosure to investors um, mm-hmm. of uh, security <clears throat> issues was, was, was useful. But, you know, it seems to me that one of the most material things about intrusions is who's doing it. Right. Right, because as we know from the OPM hack, we don't expect to actually see credit card thieves using that data. We think, uh, well, I, I think it was the Chinese and everybody else says they're the leading suspect. Uh, but if you're hacked, if you're a, a, a U.S. company and you're hacked by the Chinese, then the question is, 
who are your Chinese competitors, and if they had all your uh, IP, what would they do to you? Uh, As opposed to if you're hacked by um, uh, uh, Russian criminals, then the question is, how many uh, credit card numbers did you have? And the U.S. government could be doing more to tell people, we think this set of fingerprints indicates that it's Russian or Chinese or organized crime. And I, I wonder if that isn't something that the executive branch, branch could be doing more of. What, in terms of labeling? Yeah, telling, telling companies, oh yes, attributing attacks and giving uh, companies that are under attack more information about who is the likely attacker. I, you know, I, information sharing is absolutely critical here. And I think it is something, and frankly, that was something that watching the evolution of this debate, even from that early Rockefeller bill, because frankly, that was something that we were calling for as well. I do think there has been an increase, but I think your point is one that is well taken, which is we need to continue to increase that. And there is a lot of conversations about how do we do that and how do we do it better. And I don't think you necessarily need public attributions because, frankly, um, you know, I think this administration has been very focused on how do we address the problems. And sometimes public attribution is the best way to do it. Sometimes there are arguments for doing it in more um, uh, private settings or engaging, you know, different uh, you know, uh, state actors who may be involved in these type things. Um, but I do think information sharing is absolutely critical. So let me push on that a little. Uh, there's a, there was a very good report out of Citizen Lab on the GitHub attacks mm-hmm. that said this could not have been done by anyone except the Chinese using the Great Firewall, turning it around and firing out. Right. Uh, um, and as far as I can tell, the government hasn't done anything except perhaps ask the Chinese you know, this is almost a joke, to investigate the uh, the attack. Uh, uh, that was an attack using U.S. computers on a U.S. institution because they were publishing the New York Times, a U.S. newspaper, and making it available to Chinese. I don't quite understand why there isn't a greater outrage and a direct attribution to China coming out of the executive branch. Well, look, I think, A, as you said, there's, you know, in many cases, and we've seen this recently, whether it's Mandiant calling out state actors, whether it's other, um, you know, intrusions being identified. I think this is a, it is a very, um, you know, it is a, there, there are multiple levels of complexity to this. And I also do think that you've seen, I mean, I can tell you, at the very highest levels of the U.S. government, there have been a lot of discussions about how do we handle these things, what is going to be the most productive way to engage states that engage in this type of behavior, um, and frankly, trying to continue to look to keep the, the long ball, which is how do we achieve our, you know, our objectives here, and frankly, how do we, uh, you know, address these situations? So I, there is, there is a very high level of engagement. I can promise you that, and uh, I can also tell you that I think there is a lot of sort of very, um, you know, thoughtful discussion going on about what is the best way to do this and and achieve what we all see as a long-term goal, not just, you know, and obviously labeling in a short term feels good, and it frankly, you know, but no, you, a, but you, 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 you have to. Be prepared to, to answer the question, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, and that's, it's not only what you're going to do about it, but it's also what is your proof. And the challenge about mm-hmm. all of this, and I think as we've seen from a number of nation state actors, we make allegations and they say, well, show us your proof. And obviously sometimes, you know, proof is not something that can be shared. You're not going to A, share with other countries because then they'll understand how you do your right. craft, but B, you know, they, they will, you know, there are, there are many actors, not just countries, who deny their involvement in these things even when, you know, you may know more than you can publicly disclose. So one of the things that I thought the administration did that was 
very good, at least in potential, uh, is the new OFAC sanctions program, which mm-hmm. says if we if we determine that somebody has been using commercial cyber espionage, uh, we can uh, punish not just the uh, impose sanctions on the country or the perpetrator of the espionage, but on the beneficiary, which I think is exactly the right direction to go. Um, Obviously, nothing's been done yet. No one has been tagged. Uh, uh, What's the Commerce Department's role in that uh, program? Well, I mean, we are we are very much a part of the process of the discussion about how these, um, you know, what what are approaches are in dealing with individual situations, and also how do we use the sanctions. As you know, OFAC does the financial side, and we do our Bureau of Industry and Security actually does the sort of physical good side of the sanctions regime. And, you know, I think each case is a unique test in what is the best way to engage. Um, you know, I can say that the U.S. government, at very, to the very highest levels, um, engage countries where we do see intellectual property theft and, you know, engage in all of the bilateral forums that we, we engage in, um, pushing on these issues. And often it is a very individual strategy for each case because sometimes public naming and shaming is the right way, sometimes private uh, cajoling is the right way. Um, and frankly, part of it is just improving the intellectual property, um, you know, uh, regulations and sort of the understanding of it. Because I do think there is a, um, you know, a disconnect between, I think, how Americans view, particularly what the rules are for mm-hmm. uh, stealing, you know, commercial, um, you know, uh, information, and even, frankly, some of our very dear allies, I think <laughs> the <French>. view them. <laughs> that, let, let it be clear that was not me coughing. Um, but I, but I do think it is important. That, and there, you know, and it's not just one country. There are actually multiple Western countries who we very much share. I think the same legal outlook. And you know, I often think about the analogy of how would I want to teach my children to, you know, like I have young kids. How would I want them to engage with their classmates, right? But there is definitely a view of, of some countries, and it's, it's actually pretty broad that. National security and economic security, because they're so intimately tied, that the rules are different. I mean, we in the United States have taken a very different, and there's obviously a lot of important protections within the U.S. government to make sure we don't do that stuff. But there are, you know, clearly countries, even ones who are very similar in economic system and legal systems to us, who engage in a different way. You know, I, this this bothers me about this administration's approach to this issue because it sort of says, well, if if there isn't a consensus that this is a violation of some international norm, then we've got no beef. The OPM was just in uh, national security intelligence gathering. But the fact is, you know, we have treated in as a matter of U.S. law um, espionage aimed at the U.S. government as such a serious matter that we were willing to execute people who carried it out. Uh, uh, and just because there's no international norm against espionage doesn't mean we can't treat it with the utmost seriousness. Uh, look, I think we do treat it in the utmost seriousness. I think there is what is publicly seen, and then there's also what is privately engaged. And I think part of the challenge here, frankly, is we're dealing with you know, really a change in the paradigm, right? Mm-hmm. Because you go back to the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 where you actually had national borders. And it was very easy in a national security context when you have borders that if, you know, another country crosses your border, that is, in, you know, in many cases an act of war. What is, what are the lines in the digital world? And that is much more complicated. It is. And, you know, it, because it is, 
you know, a number of countries are engaging in. To your point, there is no norm. You've got to figure it out. I don't think it's this is just this administration. No, no, I think, I, I think it was a problem a challenge. last administration. Right, and I think we're going to continue to see it as a challenge because I think drawing where you don't have clear lines, right, it becomes very difficult to do that. And I think that is one of the reasons that, you know, there's at least been some discussion about do we start a conversation about international norms in this space. And I think that has already started in, in various multilateral forums, and I think it's one that has to continue. But I do think it goes to the challenge I mentioned before, that we actually view this, I think, to a significant degree in a different way than many other countries do. I, I, I completely agree with you on that. Uh, so I, uh, to change the subject back to the NIST cybersecurity framework, mm-hmm. Intel has done a very nice paper talking about how they used the cybersecurity framework. Uh, and one of the things that uh, they apparently did as part of adapting it to their needs was add in a threat intelligence uh, element, which I thought was exactly right. That uh, How you secure your data depends on who you think is trying to steal it sure. uh, and how good they are and what tools they use, etc. Uh, and so that raised for me the question, what is, uh, what is uh, the cybersecurity framework 2.0 look like? That's a good question. And I think part of it, it's funny because I asked this question of our team, and the question is it will be 1.1 or 2.0 is part one. Because, you know, the, the beauty of the framework and one of the things that I think is a strength of NIST is the way they collaborate with the private sector. And that it is really truly both a partnership but an exchange of best practices. And so the NIST team has already started engaging the private sector to figure out that exact question. What is, what is the next iteration? How do we build? And part of it is it's a little bit of a challenge. We're still trying to grow at adoption of it, right? So to the extent that, you know, we've done pretty well and we're actually trying to get good metrics on how broadly it has been adopted because there's no easy way to measure it, um, we're in the process of doing that right now, but also that di- that exact dialogue. And when is the right time to come out with the next iteration? What does it look like? Do you do a major overhaul or do you do a minor, you know, not minor, but a set of tweaks to build on, which I think is probably the most likely, which is building on what I think everybody agrees has actually been a pretty good and successful product. And frankly, one that I, you know, watching the deployment and, you know, particularly watching consulting firms take it and, you know, turn it into a very effective business and going into the corporate world, I think shows the strength of the framework and what a useful tool it is. Mm -hmm. No, it's it's just having a common Terminology is, mm-hmm. uh, is one of its great values. So last topic I wanted to cover uh, uh, is uh, it turns out that this entire cybersecurity industry is um, up in arms over uh, a uh, export control uh, re- proposed regulation that the Commerce Department put out. Uh, 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 Kevin Wolf, I should say, has been doing a great job of industry outreach. He's mm-hmm. met many times with uh, with industry, uh, uh, but that hasn't prevented them from reading the reg and saying, oh, my God, everything we do is covered by uh, sure. by this regulation. Uh, what's the future of the, uh, the regulation, and uh, uh, how do you you propose to deal with the concerns that industry is raising? Well, look, a, a, you know, it is in the DNA of the Commerce Department to be a public-private partnership and to really view, and I think that is the beauty of a proposed regulation. One of the reasons that we didn't just go and issue something as many other countries did is recognizing the strength, and I actually think this is one of the strengths of the notice and comment system that the United States employs, is the ability to go out, seek comment, and then react to it. 
And, you know, I, as you pointed out, Kevin and Eric Hirshhorn and the entire BIS team is very focused on let's take input on this. Let's understand the concerns of the stakeholders and then let's try to be responsive to those and then come back. So I think you will see a, uh, a, a aggressive outreach effort and looking at the comments that have come in. B, I think you will see a very strong effort to be responsive to those comments and to try to, um, you know, figure out what is the next iteration of this, and frankly, give people another opportunity to comment. I, I, think I, I think that would be great. I, you're right. Uh, it's it's very complicated and hard, and the language that came out the first time had a lot of unintended consequences, sure. so it makes sense to, to try again and let, let people comment again. But that's the beauty of our system, I think, is we actually have the flexibility built in to let experts offer their opinions for you know, stakeholders to express how it will impact them and then to be able to go back and, and, and be flexible and figure out, okay, what is the best way to do this? And so, um, you know, and, and the BIS team, I think, you know, is, is they do their jobs very well, but they also try to be responsive and understand the concerns of stakeholders so they can issue the absolutely best final rule they can at the end of the process. So uh, this, I can't resist asking this. Uh, the kind of company that was most... Uh, in the uh, bullseye for controls was a company like Hacking Team, uh, mm-hmm. selling tools for uh, uh, breaking into computers to uh, uh, governments that are less than fully democratic. Uh, um, and yet, according to the leaked documents, they had no trouble selling and continuing to support uh, their tools uh, uh, oh, right up until the uh, the time of the uh, hack. And I wondered, has anybody in the U.S. government gone to the Italian government and said, uh, did you, like, license all this? <laughs> I, I cannot comment on that. <laughs> uh, but what I can tell you is, look, that is one of the challenges of a broad multilateral regime. And, uh, you know, we recognize, and, and you know, look, that part of the reason that these types of rules existed for those exact situations. And, um, you know, so it is our goal to try to figure out how to accommodate um, both industry, but also, you know, try to protect against bad behavior. But uh, I, I, I can't comment I, I, on what I, discussions have <laughs> been had. I would be shocked if that hadn't happened or didn't happen. Now, Alan, any questions that you'd like to add? No, I think uh, we, we covered a lot of uh, a lot of good grounds. So. And so uh, we traditionally end these by asking our guests if they've got any upcoming events that they'd like uh, listeners to know about. What uh, we'll upcoming be events? Well, I Speeches, uh, uh, documents you're going to release, uh, uh, anything of the sort. That- um, there was such a positive reaction to the um, regional cybersecurity event we did last year. There's a great interest in doing it again. That's and frankly, right. one of the questions that we've asked and I've tasked our team with is, um, how do we best do it again? And frankly, are there ways to be inclusive of even more companies? So stay tuned for 2016, but we absolutely are going to, A, re-engage on the regional uh, kind of Eastern European uh, cybersecurity uh, dialogue. But then, B, um, you know, for companies that are interested Stay tuned because I think we're going to come back and look at ways to probably even increase the the involvement because that's one of the challenges of our trade missions is you can only pick a limited number of companies, right? And we want to make sure that we're doing the broadest and, frankly, giving as many opportunities as we can uh, to companies to engage and be part of that process. So Alan and I are working on mechanisms by which the victims of cyber espionage can sue the beneficiaries under U.S. law. So it may be that uh, one of us will volunteer to come along and teach uh, wherever you go, the, the, the residents of any country you go to, uh, just how many legal remedies they have. There you go. All, All right. right. Thanks so much, Bruce you, Andrews. You are very welcome. All right.
Thank you to uh, Alan Cohn and to Bruce Andrews. As a reminder, the Cyber Law Podcast is now open to feedback, and you're going to have to live with feedback until September uh, because we will be on hiatus in August. Uh, so please do send questions, suggestions for interview ca- candidates, topics to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com uh, or give us a phone call at 202-862-5785. This has been Episode 77 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, we hope you will enjoy it. join us when we return in September, when we'll once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.